0: I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in the fourth chapter of his Gospel story. uh, As we look at verses 16 and following. Um, As we think of John's Gospel, we hear of Jesus as being the true light, which gives light to everyone, that he tabernacles with his people. God come in the flesh to heal, to renew, to create. His is a ministry of reconciliation. He's come to restore All things which have been tainted by sin. And this is exactly what Luke is showing in his gospel as well. He goes on to show us today that Jesus came to his own, and yet his own did not receive him. That's the theme for this morning. Jesus has come to restore all things, and yet his own rejected him. How true this is even yet today, and in spite of the treatment of the King of Glory day in and day out, Jesus remains patient, infinitely powerful, He continues to call the world to a repentance and a repentance that restores. How are we responding to that call today? That's what Luke is asking us or inviting us to ask of ourselves. Will you join me with a word of prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us Jesus, who is the living word. Grant us now a portion of your spirit that our hearts might be softened to receive what you have for us. Our ears might be opened as well, and our eyes might behold the glory of Jesus Christ in your word. Draw near to us that we might be changed, transformed into the image of your own Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Throughout the next handful of weeks and into Easter, we will be walking together through Luke's gospel and various portions of it. And so we come now to Luke 4. We've missed a few sections in there, which we'll be touching on in Sunday school classes. But prior to our text here, in the middle of chapter 4... Luke has told us now that Jesus has been baptized that he's been anointed with the holy spirit and after that what Jesus goes into the wilderness is cast or led into the wilderness by the spirit and he passes the temptations as the, the true and faithful Israel who failed in the wilderness but Jesus remains faithful and true. Luke tells us that Satan departs Jesus for a season at least And then Jesus travels up north to his hometown region of Galilee, the place he grew up in. And it says he goes in the power of the Spirit. And it's good to be home, isn't it? It's good to be home, right? Chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, Jesus' reputation as a preacher with power goes before him. He is robustly welcomed into the, the church services throughout that region. For faithful Jews in that day, pilgrimage would be made from the region of Galilee on festival seasons. They would go down to Jerusalem and Temple worship there on those occasions. But when it comes to the daily wear and tear of religious exercise, well, that was carried out in the synagogue. You might think of it as maybe a local church. Chanting God's word, prayers were offered up. God's word would be read and taught. People were being formed in the synagogue worship in praise of God. So, when a preacher, the caliber or maybe the brevity of Jesus' ministry comes to town, you'd be crazy not to invite him in. Verse 16, when he he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written... Now, Jesus attends synagogue worship, and at the very least, it does acknowledge there is importance in in gathering corporately as a people to renew covenant with God. Jesus seemed to find value in it at least. Sabbath worship had been uh, established for centuries, and as Jesus' own custom, as Luke tells us here, we seek to imitate Jesus in this as well, even uh, rising to read his gospel, a posture that reflects a type of respect and honor for God's word as God's uh, voice is being spoken through his servant. And Jesus has given a big old scroll with the prophet Isaiah on it. So that means he doesn't have any of those tabs on the side of your Bible or the table of content, uh, the chapter and verse divisions. He's lacking all of that. And so he's literally scrolling through Isaiah's prophecies And he comes to this one about restoration, where God's anointed one would come to restore the land. He's quoting, or he's reading from Isaiah chapter 61, and he tacks on a little bit of chapter 58 as well. And we'll read that now, verse 18, from the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. You can picture it, can't you? Scroll, set it down, Jesus sits down, and these eyes are fixed on the preacher, and they anticipate help to understand this brief passage that was just read from them, And this brief passage would begin to fire up the imagination of the the attentive listener, most probably who could not read for themselves. And those who know their history, they understand that the word now given in their presence was first addressed to people who lived, you know, centuries prior to them. Those people who would soon know invasion and attack by a ruthless enemy those people whose families and homes would be under duress and attacked. Many of those people would be taken to a foreign land, while those who were left to remain there, maybe even those in Nazareth, would be some left in the region. They were left as but a skeleton community, reduced somewhat to drudgery. But now, in this small town, located in a a hidden pocket by the Sea of Galilee, of Nazareth, The Nazarenes, they're seeking to inhabit this life of faith which Isaiah preached about. And they hear from Isaiah's prophecy some profound things. They hear firstly about God's anointed one. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. God has his anointed one, this Messiah, also known as Christ. That's what the anointed one is, that that, that he would send his Christ, who would be empowered by God's Spirit, and this one would do wonders, and for the people in Nazareth of the day, that we maybe haven't seen this one, but still we hope that God is going to send him. Some in the area and and south of them thought maybe John, the one who was baptizing out in the wilderness, that wild-haired, a dressing guy, you know, We thought maybe he was the Christ, but he keeps pointing us to another, but there's anticipation an anointed one of God will come. They would also hear that there is a proclaimer of the gospel, which just means the proclaimer of good news. That's what this anointed one would be and do. He would take up the good news, deliver it to the poor, to the needy, and the oppressed, those who are poor and and needy, both of of, of, of possessions, but also those poor in spirits. There would be a gospel proclaimer. This anointed one would also proclaim freedom, would usher in freedom. Freedom from what or for what these hearers could maybe only imagine. Not sure what kind of bondage we're in, perhaps, they're saying. Even those in Isaiah's day wondered. but yet the sound of freedom sure sounds good. And then there's this last line It says in verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the the, the Old Testament year of jubilee. Year of the Lord's favor was God's gift to restore community. Every seven years, at the end of seven years, there would be kind of Sabbath rest given to the land and somewhat to the people. But when there was seven cycles of seven years, there was a great feast, great festival. A Pentecost of years brings on a year of jubilee whose aim by God is to restore society as a whole, where debts are forgiven. Those who were enslaved are liberated. They would know liberty, and the poor would be given hope. This whole prophecy here is a word of hope. It's an encouragement by Isaiah, by God through Isaiah. It's an encouragement to persevere in trial, knowing that God will send his anointed one And that anointed one will restore, will renew. In fact, he will recreate. And it's no wonder that the church folk in in Nazareth were so attentive. And in fact, this is what we gather for today, that the one, the anointed one promised in Isaiah's prophecy, we believe has come. And that we taste in part the the promises given here, though we look for them to come in full. So just put yourself, it's not too hard, right? Put yourself in the place of these church-going Nazarenes were asking, Well, what does this promise of restoration have to do with us today? Verse 20, the second half, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Verse 21, he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Do you wonder a little bit if maybe Jesus' popularity had something to do with the length of his sermons? Maybe. He read it, he said a word, and then you're out in time to go get lunch and maybe watch the ball game, just like that. No wonder his fame was spreading. This guy knew his work. Sometimes less is more. This is the briefest expository sermon in recorded history. And it draws forth awe from the congregation. But we'll see it also draws forth great ire as well. And maybe if Jesus would have stopped right there, his hometown people wouldn't have sought to throw him off of a cliff. If I ever think that I flop, which is quite often up here in the pulpit, I at least take solace that you have not tried that. I don't know where you'd find a cliff in Nebraska anyway, but... What exactly is Jesus claiming here that leaves a people marveling and speaking well of him but will soon enraging them to want to throw him off? In short, Jesus is saying, look no further than me. What you've just heard, you now see. In a sense, Jesus is saying, I am God's anointed one, the Christ. Spirit saturated as Witnesses at my baptism will attest. In a sense, Jesus in that one line is saying, I have been proclaiming good news, and you will see more of me recovering sight for the blind. You'll see me free those who are bound. You will see me attend to the needs of the poor. What Isaiah promised, Jesus is saying, I fulfill. And if you stick with me, you will see all of this come true. And as we walk through the next few accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, you see that's exactly what he's doing. Jesus comes to usher in the year of the Lord's favor. But something is amiss as, as the, the people talk in the midst of this sermon. They say, is this not Joseph's son? And Jesus' response maybe feels a little disjointed or strange. Maybe someone out of place. They say, is this not Joseph's son? Verse 23. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. When Jesus is on the cross, a challenge is shouted. He saved himself, he saved others, let him save himself. Let him prove himself to be this promised Messiah. And maybe here in this is this Joseph's son? Maybe there's some that are doubting his claim to be the anointed one, his Messiahship. Perhaps there's doubt in this line. Is this not Joseph's son? Or maybe it's not necessarily that he has to prove himself, but this is Joseph's son. This is one of our guys. He should do some special things amongst us as well, shouldn't he? Maybe there's a a presumption here. Do for us as you did for those in Capernaum. As we read Luke's gospel account, Jesus seems to be challenged time and again to prove his claims. He seems doubted at every Turn And even those who believe often seek to keep his power for themselves. But Luke will show us that Jesus is a lover untamed. He's a Lord unmoved by coercion. He is a Savior calling for faith and trust and allegiance to him. Now, those who have known the beauty and the blessing of of growing up in a God-fearing community in the body of Christ, in a loving home, and church can probably relate to what this hometown would think of their hero at times. Well, these are Jesus, they can relate to, we can relate to those of Jesus' hometown. Knowing Jesus since childhood, there's, there's a familiarity. Maybe it's that old couple who's seen Jesus as a little tyke, watching him grow into a man and proud of his accomplishments and the reputation that he's now has. And perhaps they, like we often do, grow passive or presumptuous. Maybe we pay little attention to our hometown hero, one we have kind of grown up with, the life that we know and inhabit for so long. Or maybe life has walked us down paths which are disappointing and painful, and we wonder if this son of Joseph is who he really claims to be, and can we really trust him in our disappointments and in our pain? In the microcosm of our daily life, our disappointments, pain, we get lost in the chaos that becomes the daily busyness of life and routine. How easy it is to lose sight of just who our hometown hero is. We lose sight of his grand beatific vision of who he is and what he has come to do to crush the head of the serpent and to renew all things. Every square inch of creation It's interesting in his response. Jesus doesn't outright correct or rebuke any kind of unbelief in the people or any presumption they may have. What he does instead is he casts a vision that is big. He casts a vision of what God has been doing throughout all of his redemptive history. And Jesus is saying, I am keeping in step with what God has been doing throughout in time and space throughout history. And he brings up two prophets of old. As he reminds us, no prophet is acceptable in his home, own hometown. Verse 25, but, I tell you, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a wo- woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. God's grace is to be sent forth into the far reaches of the globe. He is calling the nations unto himself. Now, if you've worshipped with us over the past few months, some of these stories of Elijah and Elisha might ring a bell a little bit. Yes, remember that wild-eyed Elijah? He called down fire on the prophets of Baal. And then he, he fled the wrath of that wicked queen Jezebel. He goes down and he hides himself in the cleft of the rock to hear from God. One prayer of his, he, it brought rain onto this drought-ravaged land. As a deliverer, he was sent not to the children of Israel, but out of Israel. He goes to Jezebel's hometown. He miraculously feeds a nameless widow and raises her dead son. Then you've got Elisha. He was used to heal of leprosy, a mighty general, a certain Naaman, who was from the enemy territory of Syria, commanded him to cleanse himself in the Jordan, and Naaman was healed. Despite the insult and indignation of this outsider, God healed this outsider. The point of these two stories in this, in this place here, is that God had passed over many in Israel in order to heal those of other nations. No longer is presumption acceptable. God's redemption is for the whole world, and it always has been. He doesn't rebuke nor correct outright, but rather what he does is he casts their eyes upon himself to the grander vision that he is sent to redeem the whole world. Jesus is seeking to open up the eyes of the blind, even those in his own hometown. His mission is cosmic in nature. It is much more than the mission in this little forgotten town on this tiny blue dot called Earth. He has the mission to heal, to deliver and proclaim liberty, to give sight to the blind, to usher in the year of jubilee And it's not just for Nazareth or Israel, but for the nations, for the whole world, not just Jesus' hometown or his home country. God is is generous in his grace, and he's calling sheep from other folds and inviting them in. And those from other folds are seen to be responding throughout Luke's gospel. They seem to be responding in faith and humility in repentance and love for Jesus but in his own hometown, verse 29, they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their, own, their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. No prophet is acceptable in his home town. Remember Moses? His life was sought by those he delivered a handful of times. David's own son led a coup against the king. The prophet Jeremiah was rejected by the men of Anathoth. Think of Stephen. He was stoned by his fellow Jews. Even Paul, when he preaches around his hometown area, he's falsely accused. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown, which in a sense summarizes what sin is. If we think about Adam and Eve, Walking in, in the, with God in the cool of the day, the house that God had created for them and for him to dwell in, in peace. It is in that home which they rejected God, and they ate of the fruit, refusing to heed his word and his way of life. The whole of creation is a house for God's name in which we inhabit, and yet we are hell-bent upon rejecting his way, his word and his very son. And so we might picture sin somewhat as a child which is raised in a loving home for whom much was sacrificed for. A child who has been loved for years and years who then turns away as if they're beloved, as if the one who loved them has never existed. This is a picture of sin. Rejecting the home, the home and the giver of the home. God is not accepted. His word and his way are rejected in the home which he created for his own. Jesus goes to his own hometown and is not accepted. Jesus' hometown neighbors sought to stone him by throwing him from a cliff. But Jesus' work is not near complete. He escapes mysteriously He just passes through the crowd, and then he does what? He goes on to the next town, and he preaches. He proclaims freedom. He heals. He opens up blind eyes. He ushers in forgiveness, forgiveness of debts, restoration of the land. Jesus' glory rests a great deal in his humility. The creator of the world, when he enters into the flesh, he He takes on flesh. He has no place to lay his head. And he's rejected by those he came to save. He's rejected by those even he grew up with. And yet he gives his life for these. And still he goes on to proclaim truth. And still, despite of the rejection, he, for the joy set before him, pursues the cross. The Apostle Paul can sum it up this way. He says, for while we were yet Sinners. While we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. In the midst of rejection, Christ continues to pursue. Perhaps we become so familiar with Jesus that we take for granted his person and work at various times. Or perhaps we come only when his power just might be needed as our plans fail or our futures seem so uncertain. But Jesus warns against this type of rejecting him or this type of presumption as well. In a sense, what he's warning us is that, hey, there is a harvest of souls ripe for the plucking. The one who sowed the seed throughout the world will come to judge and to reap the harvest. There is a warning that Christ as the king and the judge will come. But this warning is couched in the glory of his power and his grace. And he's saying that I'm going, I'm sent, I'm commissioned to go to the ends of the earth. I have sheep from other folds, and they will hear my voice, and they will come. The poor, like the the nameless widow of Zarephath, will be greeted with his generous grace. So will the wealthy, like the general Naaman. The rich and the poor alike, though enslaved in different versions of sin, they will be given liberty, sight, and forgiveness In Jesus Christ. And I think this passage does show us that we who follow Jesus, we've got to expect rejection in our world. If not yet, as we continue to live faithfully in His way and according to His Word, we will taste rejection. And in those times, in those moments, When we feel the pain of that rejection, we are to remember Jesus here in his own hometown was not found acceptable. That he came to those for whom he came to save, and he was rejected by his own. There is a reality or sense in which we do experience rejection. Hey, we're in good company. As we grieve the pain of rejection, we grieve in Jesus' name. And we go on to continue to preach his liberty, that he opens eyes of the blind. So the exhortation for us at the end of this story is this. Be strong, be courageous, proclaim Christ boldly. For the truth which we inhabit and proclaim is indeed the year of jubilee. In Christ are all the promises of that year fulfilled. In him, we taste freedom. In him, we taste forgiveness. We know liberation. The blind are given sight because God's anointed one has come. And he sits now on his throne to reign forever. And he commissions each and every one of us in his spirit so that we are his anointed ones sent forth to proclaim life to proclaim liberty to a world in need. And by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, may we depart in his peace to proclaim his truth every day. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this word, and we ask that in Christ you would grant us your grace, your strength, your courage to live lives that are open before a watching world, that they might behold our lives and give glory to you who is Jesus Christ our Lord, in his name we pray, amen.